where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. Now, if you get into the surgeries, you know, this, this is where it gets really brutal because you will most likely not have functioning lower genitalia um, that will be able to do the things, you know, you, you've rendered these children infertile. So they're offered fertility preservation. Little boy, would you like to bank your sperm and freeze it in the sperm bank so that when you grow up and you're pretending to be a woman, you can go, little girl, before you become a, a boy, would you like to freeze and bank your eggs? Because we know what we're doing is rendering them sterile or at a, at a minimum, maybe just neg you know, negatively impacting their fertility so they may be able to get pregnant, but probably not. And why do we offer fertility preservation to them? Because we know damn well that we're gonna, what we're about to do is gonna render them infertile. Hey everybody, Michael Thiessen here. We are at Open Mic with Michael Thiessen, and today I get to speak with Jennifer Lal, who is the founder and president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network. Jennifer, great to have you on the show with us today. Thanks, Michael. It's good to be with you. It's great to be with you. Um, for our listeners, I'll just let everybody know how I met Jennifer. And uh, that was just out in San Francisco when Jennifer was lecturing at a symposium on the family. And with Jennifer's uh, 25 years of nursing background and her leadership at the Center for Bioethics, she was teaching on what's going on in the transgender movement and how alarming and difficult that is and, 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 and some suggestions of, of what we need to do in order to protect the family. So uh, everybody, that's why I thought it would be really important for us to talk today. Uh, Jennifer, m my audience is a mixture of Canadians and Americans. Mm -hmm. And one of the women up in Canada who has just been really brave entering into some of the topics that you've been talking about is um, someone named Anne Gillies. And so we've really appreciated her voice, but she's a very solo voice up in Canada. Um, you're, you're delving into topics when you're talking about bioethics that few dare to tread. What has, what has it been like founding the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network? Oh, kind of a little like a voice crying in the wilderness. <laughs> Sometimes I joke and I feel like the Old Testament prophet that just runs around saying, beware, watch out. And then I get tired and I go, I'm just going to sit in my sack, sackcloth and ashes. Forget about it. <laughs> slowly, slowly. The I know, I know that. <laughs> That's a, that's a great image because sometimes I think of I'm going to be like, you know what, if they call me one more name, that's fine. I'm just going to get some camel skin on. That's fine. I'm just walking around in camel skin from now on. Then. Yeah. I always joke I'm not very much fun at cocktail parties. So when people say, you know, what do you do? It's just I want to say I want to lie and say I sell flowers because there's nothing controversial. I don't think about being a florist. <laughs> But yeah, so, it's controversial so work, and so that makes it hard. Yeah, go go ahead, and why don't you explain a little bit about the work of the network, as, so that we can understand yeah. that. Well, we, we I'm not a I'm not a Trekkie, but what's that line about? We go where no one fear dares to go, or something. We talk about things that people don't want to talk about because they're really important and difficult and messy, ucky things. So we talk about infertility and barren wombs and high-tech pregnancies. Um, we talk about cloning and should we destroy human embryos to develop cures so that we can help sick people. Um, we talk about the transgender movement, which gets everybody up in arms because, you know, why are you so intolerant? Why don't you just leave people alone? And if people want to do X, Y, and Z to their bodies, why can't they do that? And, you know, we find that 
religious, conservative, kind of traditional family value. People don't talk about this stuff. Um, and if the left talks about it, they talk about it from the wrong point of view. <laughs> so, um, have you guys verged into the area of, um, bioconvergence or, um, is that a topic where you've explored the idea of, um, you know, computers and hu transhumanism in, yes. in that sense at all, or is yeah. that a no, because our, well, our what are some of the we we live in the space of what we call making human life and faking human life, and all of the ways we can make human life today is through assisted reproductive technology, cloning babies, designer babies, and the faking of human life, which is the merging of technology into our humanness. We've actually hosted two conferences on transhumanism. Uh, the Face of the Future, the Techno Sapiens was the name of the conference series. We had the head of the you know world transhumanist movement, Nick Bostrom was one of our speakers. So yeah, and we are situated in the backyard of Silicon Valley. So I like to tell people we have a front seat on the future. So we've got the Singularity University you know, in our backyard down in, in Silicon Valley. You know, we have the people in Silicon Valley that want us to live forever, you know, to overcome mortality um, through better technology. And so we write and speak and think about what does it mean to integrate artificial intelligence, robotics, nanotechnology into our human beings. And we'll, you know, like C.S. Lewis's abolition of man. In the end, what will man's final conquest be? Will it be the abolition of man? Will we live in a truly post-human future where we won't have humans anymore? I don't think you're going to hear that on Sunday morning at church. You know, we're not talking about those kind of urgent, pressing things as technology just kind of steamrolls forward with no breaks or no exit rails. I think it's really important when we talk about the concept of steamrolling and not hearing about it in the church. I've talked about this a bunch and that is the pragmatism that is in the church. So in the church, you have, you have a, the ends justifies the means attitudes towards many things. Uh, the ends justifies the means in our attitudes concerning our methodology for evangelism. The end justify the means in our attitudes in our methodology uh, towards uh, rearing children or, or having a, uh, you know, developing a children's program. The ends justifies the means uh, when we decide to ignore scripture and then, you know, really create these safe spaces that don't call people to repentance of sin. The ends justify the means when we make people victims, you know, you have this ends justify the means and then, and then we're, we're battling the same conversation when it comes to technology because the, um, the potential for, I think, what people see and perceive as ease and comfort because of what technology can bring, you go, well, the ends justify the means. And it's interesting, you you run the, the Center for Bioethics. So let's talk about that. <laughs> let's talk about that word, ethics, because it's at this point that you would think the church would be super excited about um, – stopping, halting, pausing, thinking, correcting, and speaking based upon an ethical standard. So, so it seems to me that ethics is a good solution and a good subject matter for us all. Um, how, how do you, are you finding you can engage that with pastors, with churches, with ch just church leaders, you know, and then let's also just talk about the, the foundation of ethics. Yeah, that's a that's a lot right there. You gave me a lot of things to think about and comment on. Well, first, the work that we do is across faith traditions and with people of no faith, because we've had to build a really ragtag coalition of people who think about these things and care deeply about these, whether it be from a religious perspective or not. And, and in that space, we also work very closely with Roman Catholics. We work very closely with Mormons. Um, you know, we work very closely with more traditional Orthodox Jews or Muslims. Like I've been in Qatar and spoken at a big conference on bioethics in, in Qatar. So, um, so, you know, it's not like we, when you say the church, 
I get in trouble when I say that because the Presbyterians go, well, what do you mean? And the Baptists go, well, what do you mean? And But if you say the church and you're speaking to Catholics, the Catholics know because the Catholic church has very clear teaching on a lot of the work that I do uh, as it relates to infertility and fertility and the use of technology. So a lot of the things that I work on would be just immediately, um, I could be very comfortable speaking in in. Catholic settings with Orthodox Catholics. I mean, not like Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden Catholics, but people who really live and breathe and adhere to the teaching of their faith tradition. I'm not Catholic. So, you know, when I'm with Protestants, it really depends because it's like herding cats (laughs) because there's no sort of authority like Rome. So we don't have that. So it's really hard to talk, talk about ethics because we have people in the church who have had babies through surrogacy, who have had babies through buying eggs from another woman or, or buying sperm from another man to, to make a baby. And I have had pastors and people in church say, isn't that wonderful that God allowed this couple to have a baby because they're amazing people and they're great parents. And it was so sad that they couldn't have babies. So that's been near impossible to have those kind of conversations when you speak the church. Now, when you speak broadly with individual people in churches that are mindful and do sometimes lay up in bed at night and worry about such things, you know, more thoughtful, uh, more orthodox, more traditional, whatever adjectives you want to say. Um, and as far as ethics, you know, that gets back to, you know, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You know, your ethics is not my ethics. Well, I think it's okay that my sister wants to help me have a baby and give me some of her eggs. You know, I think that's great. She's willing, like Jesus, to lay down her life for me, you know, versus and, and another couple would say, we're so thankful that when we couldn't conceive, God impressed upon our heart not to do X, Y, and Z, that the fertility doctors are offering us, even though we desperately wanted a child. Our federal government's response to economic difficulties is to print money until it's worthless, driving up the cost of everything, essentially stealing from your hard-earned pay. What you need is to take control of your own resources and to be responsible for your own money, which is your responsibility. Bull Bitcoin wants to help you do just that. Bull Bitcoin is a 100% self-funded, freedom-minded Canadian Bitcoin exchange that wants to protect your financial freedom and help you protect your resources. If you're at all aware of what's going on in our country... You should seriously consider connecting with my friends over at Bull Bitcoin and buying at least some Bitcoin today. Sign up at mission.bullbitcoin.com backslash LCC. That's mission.bullbitcoin.com backslash LCC and have all of your questions answered. That's mission.bullbitcoin.com backslash LCC. Thanks everyone for supporting them. We got our work cut out for us, Michael. No, we absolutely do because each one of the, in the same way that you said, I gave you a lot to to (laughs) chew on and comment on it. It's, it just almost seems overwhelming, especially when, especially when the conversations verge disciplines, right? So you're the center for, for bioethics. You know, I'm, I, I'm a pastor and a fellow for church and family discipleship. And the, the discipline of bioethics really overlaps with, you know, talking about theology and, and talking about philosophy. So I think on many respects, uh, people just get overwhelmed with, okay, one, let's do one thing at a time. And yet, People are dealing with 30 different things right now with all of these changes. Why don't I kind of dive into a comment that you just made so you can help our listeners understand what you meant. So you, you, you made a comment about surrogacy. Why don't you explain your perspective on surrogacy and the reasons why that, that would seem to cause you concern? Uh, I, know, I know that I came across the idea of surrogacy and have rejected it for a number of reasons. I would love you to unpack that one. Cause I think like you said, most people have no idea 
that there are ethical issues involved. It's just whether do you want to do it or not. Yeah. And, you know, because most people haven't thought deeply about it because they're busy living their lives. I'm, I'm cool with that. I get that. Um, this is my jam. It's not everybody else's jam. But most people just see a couple that they think would make wonderful parents. They hear their story of infertility and not being able to have a baby. And then they find this angel who's willing to help them. And they go, what's wrong with that? It's kind of like, you know, being a kidney donor and saving somebody's life or, and, and so the things that, you know, again, it depends on who's my audience, you know, Jesus was really good about knowing his audience and who he was speaking to. So he could sort of like, you know, res get his message would connect to whoever he was speaking to. So if I'm in a secular audience, <clears throat> um, I, because I was a pediatric critical care nurse for many, many years, I talk about the health risks and the health risks are real. Most people don't think that surrogacy is, is risky. They think, well, all pregnancy has risks. And I go, yeah, all pregnancy has risk. And a surrogate pregnancy has those risks, risks, and additional ones. Because by design, the woman, when she's carrying somebody else's baby, her body immediately tries to reject it because it's foreign, right? It's like if I just gave you my kidney and they, you, you would reject it because we didn't match and we didn't make sure that this was going to be a good fit. So when a woman is pregnant carrying somebody else's baby, her body immediately experiences a sort of like an allergic reaction in trying to rid herself of this foreign. You know, it's like getting an infection. Your body's trying to clear it and, and compete with it. Um, it's it's a well-known fact that mothers and babies bond during pregnancy. In fact, doctors and nurses in the hospital encourage that. So if there's ever a medical complication, a, 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 you know, we try to keep babies and moms together. There's one thing a newborn baby knows when they're born. They know their mother. And you don't have to teach them that. You know, we live in California. We had to wait eight weeks by law to bring home our newborn puppy because it's seen as animal cruelty to remove that baby from its, you know, and bring it home. But we take a baby out of this womb that it's known for nine months and we plop it into the hands of, you know, Tom and Betty, who are wonderful people, or Bob and Joe, who are a gay couple who now have a way to have a baby. And we think nothing of it. So we know that there's trauma. Um, our own research that my colleague and I published last year showed that surrogate mothers have more postpartum depression with their surrogate pregnancy when compared to their pregnancies where the, with their own children who came home with them. And you have to think, hmm, why would this woman who's helping somebody and then delivers the baby and hands the baby over go home with more depression? Because her body is wanting to nurse a baby, hold a baby, comfort a baby, and we've removed all that. Um, then you can talk about the transactional because most of this is done for money. You know, the couple pays the surrogate, you know, I'm sorry, that's buying and selling a child. If the surrogate doesn't hand over the baby, she's a breach of her contract and they come after her for being a breach of her contract. So there's the whole transactional. I've interviewed a woman. It's on my website. You can listen to it. Her first baby picture is in the lawyer's office where the surrogate is handing her to the people who bought her and the surrogate's getting a $10,000 check. You know, what does that do to the family when there's this transactional, you do this, we'll do that, and then everybody's happy because these people got a baby. And if Jennifer, you can I ask you a question? Can yes. I ask you a question to follow up from the first comment that you made about mm -hmm. the, the, the mother, uh, the surrogate mother potentially rejecting the baby? Um, we're talking about we're talking about a fertilized egg. We're talking about a conceived child being implanted into another woman and then the potential of that woman's body rejecting that. Am I, am I hearing you correctly? Correct. Because and the then, <laughs> well, and then the second question would be, well, if her body is naturally rejecting and this does happen, then is that not, is that not an, is that not a, an abortive death? Like, is that not a, 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 we're knowingly subjecting a child to risk that would, it, it's not the same as a, a man and a woman coming together and not conceiving because there was some type of uh, 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 organic issue. It is conceived mm -hmm. child now being subjected to a, a dangerous, Proceed like a like a, like a risky procedure. 
Yeah. Well, the body is an amazing thing. And what happens because mo we now know this, right? We know this because people like my group and others have done research on surrogate pregnancies in the medical literature. So oftentimes a woman is put on steroids, right? To sort of handle that inflammation, that rejection attempt. Just like when you're an organ donor, there's drugs that even though your body is trying to reject something, you're put on anti-rejection drugs. So the surrogate is often put on steroids to try to you know, mitigate the, her losing the pregnancy. Um, to, you know, to an, a natural miscarriage or a loss. However, her body still is recognizing this as foreign, which is why you're seeing in surrogate pregnancies, there's higher rates of preeclampsia, there's higher rates of maternal gestational diabetes, there's higher rates of premature birth. So babies are born, you know, four, six, eight weeks premature. Um, as we try to manage, because we're trying to manage this, right? Um, it's, it's, it's an unnatural way of conceiving a child. So it's all about damage control, quality controls, and managing to try to, at the end, get a live birth of a healthy baby. Now, the same is true of women who use just, you know, they're going to have the baby on their own, but they need an egg donor. That, that rejection is very much prevalent in the medical literature, too, because she's pregnant with an embryo that's been made with some other woman's um, egg. Same with sperm donation. If you're, you know, you're women, women when they're newly married, they even have a little bit of inflammation and reaction to their husband's semen, sperm, because it's foreign. But, but, but over time, because we're with our husbands for years and years and years, our body adjusts because the body is an amazing thing. But for women who get pregnant with just a donor sperm, they will have that initial reaction. But it gets back to just sort of the design. I mean, our, my body is meant to have my children. You know, my body is not meant to have right. somebody else's children. And that's by design. Um, whether you believe that's a, a scientific design, an evolutionary design, or a God-ordained design, you know, your audience can pick and choose their, their worldview. But it's by design that my body does best carrying my own children, not somebody else's child. Uh, and let's connect that. Let's co connect that. Well, my audience knows that they, 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 they actually can't just pick their worldview without major consequences when they face the Lord. But um, let's connect that, though, to the moral question, because actually, I, I appreciate how specific you're getting. I appreciate how then, like, um, managerial you're getting in the sense of like, you're talking, you're talking about uh, managing outcomes, you're talking about managing risk, you know, all the, all the things you've just talked about. So the ethical question behind that is, is this moral and again even even just in the scientific realm like just in the observable science the the creational realm is this moral simply because we observe that it's an abnormality that we have to manage like is, yeah. is there something immoral uh, simply because we know in as the health industry we are putting people at greater risk of all of these uh, side effects, which would then fly in the face of the Hippocratic Oath and things like do no harm. Yeah, I would say that this is it, this is not the purview, the realm, the domain of proper medicine. I mean, when a doctor, a fertility doctor, a reproductive endocrinologist is transferring an embryo made from Susie and Tom into Debbie's womb, that doctor knows that he is putting that surrogate mother and that baby at risk and he's making a lot of money doing that and there is a signed legal contract in the united states that's how it operates there is a signed legal contract that's mandating that this woman delivers that baby to them in exchange for money um, so i just think it just sort of is layers and layers and layers now if you want to talk about my theological objections um, to, you know, for just people who want to understand, you know, people often say, well, it's surrogacy in the Bible, you know, because we have the Sarah and, and Hagar story and Abraham. And I go, yeah, and it didn't go very well, did it? Because there is a violation of the two flesh shall become one. And in that two flesh shall become one, God opens or doesn't open, and he blesses with the gift of a child. We now live with, I have a right to a child. 
I'm entitled to a child. God gave us, man gave us this technology. I've got these wonderful people willing to help me have a child. You know, so I think it just, it's a, it's a violation of the marital bed. You know, it's a violation of that two flesh. You see that with Sarah and Abraham and Hagar and how that, um, you know, this woman was able to do something for my husband that I wasn't. I see that in my work today. You know, there's all these people that start out, we're all going to be family. The surrogate's going to be in the life. She's going to come to the birthday parties. You know, it's going to be one big, happy, modern family. And as soon as that baby comes, there's friction. There's friction. You know, you, you, you can go away now. Your job is done. I've seen it happen with families, you know, family members helping family members have a baby. I've seen it happen with strangers who are all well-intentioned. It's going to be one big, happy, modern family. And, and not to say that that's always the case, but it can be. And so how do you prevent these things from happening? You don't do it. So for whatever reason, well, like, like that's a, it's, it's a really simple and, and good insight because you know, the, the positive side. So people seem to have this ideal version of the modern family that does not include concepts of loyalty, of, of healthy jealousy. Mm-hmm. Like, um, so I have three biological children and one adopted child from China and what people who have not adopted generally can't understand is that my loyalty and jealousy for my adopted child to both create affection, to both create, um, safety, to both teach her boundaries and like just generally like there, there's not a there's not an ounce of fiber in my body not there's not an atom in my body that feels differently from my beautiful daughter who was adopted rather than conceived and it would be an utter violation for anybody else to try to uh to enter into that desire for me to bond with her and for me to love and care for her. And so I know that when we adopted, we really wrestled with this. And I, I had to say to my wife, I said, like, I, I, I can't even consider an open adoption. Some people might be able to do that, but that's just, she's my girl. Like, I, like, like my boys are my boys and my, and my eldest daughter, she's my girl. Like, so what I'm trying to say is that people have this idea that we're going to be loving and loyal to one another. And yet the opposite side of that, which is also needed, like a healthy set of boundaries and, and jealousy. I'm, I'm jealous for my wife. That's not a bad thing. I, yeah. I, some dude starts getting in on my territory. He goes to ground. It's, it's done <laughs> like uh, in the name of Jesus. And I'm going to pray with him. And I'm going to share him the gospel after I subdue him. But like, so, so it's such a misunderstanding of, of um, that, that leads people into this kind of ideal world. But I, I, I would agree that, that your observation, both biblically, right? This is, this is why polygamy doesn't work. I don't know if you've ever heard Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld has a really good bit on, on polygamy. He's like, I just don't understand why it doesn't work. You know, like she wants sex once a week. I want sex every day. So if I had seven wives and. <laughs> they had one husband. Why, why, why can't we make that work? It, it's because of this two flesh creational norm that God has given to us. And we're going to, we're going to jump springboard from here into right. transgenderism because we've talked about two, two flesh, but before we springboard into that, because if you have two flesh, then you're assuming two, uh, uh two sexes, which you and I both do. Um, but you know, kind of summary, you know, give give us your final thoughts on this section on surrogacy. Yeah, I well, I do want to just comment because so you have an adopted daughter. If one, I don't know how old she is. She, is she little still? Is she, no, yeah. she's uh, thirteen, turning okay. thirteen. If she expressed interest to you to want to go back and find her biological parents to meet them to know who they were, would you object to that? Uh, if I'm being honest with everybody, I would navigate it with her. We, we we make sure that we celebrate her Chinese culture. We make sure that we spend time with friends who are um, people who look like her, so that she doesn't always kind of feel like that. Uh, you know that that person where no one looks like her. So there's been and that and that's good training. 
um, it, like that's been helpful for helping her feel comfortable in an international family. But I'll tell you right now, if she asked, I wouldn't like it. Yeah. I would, if she gets older, I would respect her wishes. Yeah. But I wouldn't like it. And and the only reason why I'm saying that is because I'm her father, and I find. If I'm being truthful, I would find a, a, a threatening feeling of needing to discover parenthood elsewhere. Um, adoptive families have to journey that adoption. Yeah. My, my general point was simply that we don't take seriously enough what God's design for a family in the sense of two parents and a child are. And when you bring a third or a fourth into that situation, it really does, as you've said, bring you immediately see conflict and i'm yeah i'm just being honest honest about the conflict that i would feel in my heart yeah i guess my final thoughts and it it, it goes into talking about transgenderism my final thoughts are you know, biology matters you know moms and dads matter children matter connectedness matters brothers and sisters and the more we rip apart these these realities you know, these bonds, these ties, these familial connections, which I think are, you know, mirrored in the Trinity, you know, it's, it's, you know, that they, they matter. And, and I'm not, of course, I'm not against adoption. There's the world, part of me always says the world is full of orphans, but, you know, people want to go and manufacture babies in the laboratory because they, they want to, you know, pick and choose. They want the child designed to their liking, to their qualifications. So, you know, if we if we recognize that that biology matters and brothers and sisters and moms and dads and families, and then you move into the transgender space where, you know, biology doesn't matter. Biology is meaningless. And there's, you know, 27, 57. I can't keep track of genders, you know, that we're all trans. We're like little um, Legos. You could just take us apart and put us back together over here any way you want. We can rip apart families. We can have open marriages, we can have plural marriages, we can have throuples, you know, um, the more we, we take ourselves away from, you know, the traditional family model, and, and, and we do that by design on purpose, which, you know, adoption is a trauma, that's a traumatic thing that's happened. We haven't designed that we haven't manufactured millions of orphans in the world by design. But what I'm talking about is all by design. That biology is meaningless. That we're all interchangeable. Yeah, let, let me for for everyone who's listening. Let's, let me let me try to take any tension in the air out of the room about adoption, and even in in, in my comments, and because I hear what you're saying, Jennifer. On one hand, you're saying when we biologically manufacture a child, biology matters, and to ignore it ignores the risk of the child it ignores the natural bondedness that the child's had with the mother it ignores the mother and her feelings and her body like women always have an ability you know, you know it's like after you've had kids where a bunch of women get together and they just talk about their bodies and you know the, the, a young young guy walks in and just immediately just turns right around he just like then falls on the floor and and passes out because he just heard a bunch of women talking about the intricacies <laughs> of their bodies yeah. um <laughs> So, so no, that is absolutely true. And, and what adoption does adoption just has to adoption deals with children who are neglected, but still under the premise of bringing them into a nuclear family. Right. So, so you don't need to negate, no one needs to feel pressure to negate what you're saying about the, the biological connection between biological children and their parents. And neither do you need to neither reject the idea that children need a loving home. And if they don't have one, they can be brought into a, a healthy home and experience real bondedness. But truthfully, I'm not like truthfully, I'm not bonded to any of my kids the way that my wife was to our three biological ones immediately. And even to our adoptive daughter, Galilee went to Sarah almost instantaneously. And it, and it took me three or four days before she'd even give me another glance. There is a <laughs> wonderful uh, bondedness there. Um, so anyways, let's move on though. So now, but now we're getting into this world where biology doesn't matter. And this is actually the part of your lecture that I did want you to repeat for my listeners, because 
I think it's the same thing. So you even, I loved how you use the word modern family because I know you're giving a dig at the sitcom and I appreciate you giving a dig at the sitcom. <laughs> Which I've never seen the, the sitcom. <laughs> fair enough. You don't need to. It's, <laughs> it's literally just, it's literally just fantasy land stupid, right? Like it's just, you know, gay guys having the perfect monogamous marriage while all of the divorced people are messed up and the, it, whatever. Like I'm not even, I've, I can truthfully say I've not watched one episode, but it's the same idealism. Like we have a modern family that's no longer the traditional family. And now we're, now we're modern uh, transgenders who are no longer traditional genders. But you and your lecture really lay out like the dangers of it and the, and the, and the, and the biological absurdity of it all and the harm. So would you take some time now in talking about when we diverge from this, these gods designed biology, what are these, what are these so-called, you know, transgendered individuals really going through and, and are there, are there problems being solved by trying to live in this imaginary world? Yeah, there, well, there's two categories we could speak of. We could speak of adults or, or, you know, young adults, young adults, adults, or children, right? There's two different categories of, of the debate happening in, in the United States in particular. You know, can we let children medically and surgically transition? I don't, you know, I don't believe you can. I don't believe all the drugs and all the surgery in the world will ever turn a man into a woman or vice versa. Or the more libertarian argument that you see in the United States, well, if you're an adult, you know, go ahead, you know, prance around in dresses, have fake breasts put on, you know, whatever. Um, I, I don't like either one of those because, again, it gets back to proper medicine. I don't think the job of medicine is to chop off healthy breasts or to chop off healthy male or female genitalia and fabricate and, you know, try to manufacture opposite genitalia on the wrong body. Um but, you know, it's even more worrisome when it's children. I think overall these these adults have mental health problems and they need good, good mental health care, you know, to get to the root. You know, it's just like when you see the anorexic girl who weighs, you know, 80 pounds and thinks she's fat. You don't say, yeah, you're fat. Let's put you on a diet. You say, let's get you some help so you can look in the mirror and see that you are dangerously thin, you know, to the point of dying. You know, we don't... Um, so, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Uh, with children, there's a whole host of things that are going on. You know, we're seeing a lot of these children who feel like they've been born in the wrong body are on the autism spectrum. You know, there's some kind of autistic thing going on. A lot of these kids have had a lot of trauma. We have children growing up in broken families like we've never seen before. You know, and, you know when you look back 50, 100, you know, and not that it was always perfect in the olden days, but there was a much more sense of family community, family ties. We don't have, we have all these kids that are latchkey kids. They have smartphones when they're seven years old. They, they're seeing pornography. Like I've never even seen as, you know, as an old woman, you know, they have access to all this stuff as well as just family trauma. Um, so again, these kids need help. They don't need to be put on testosterone if they're a little girl or estrogen if they're a little boy. Um, so, but it, but again, it gets me back to what has happened to medicine. And I, the lecture that I gave that you heard, you know, I kind of highlighted times when medicine went really bad. It's not like medicine for the first time ever went bad. It went, it went really bad during the Nuremberg trials when we were, when we were seeing what the doctors were doing in, in Nazi Germany, um, you know, in the name of advancing scientific experimentation. You know, we saw what happened with the Tuskegee st studies in the United States, where we had hundreds of African-American men who had syphilis that were part of a study that they didn't even know they were part of and were being denied proper care just, just to study the, the disease syphilis. You know, we had the lobotomy studies, which luckily was a very short window, but we medicine thought it was a good idea to do lobotomies on people that had mental illness. And then I closed my, my talk that I gave then with the mass um, involuntary, involuntary sterilization program that ran across the United States in the name of eugenics. You know, we didn't want the wrong people procreating. 
So now we have another period in time where the American Academy of Pediatrics says this is the standard of care for children that think they were born in the wrong body is to put them on hormones and to put them on the path to transitioning. It's, you know, the American Endocrinologist Society, the endocrine doctors are saying, yes, this is the standard of care for how we treat these people. And you're saying, where are the adults in the room that are going to stand, stand up and say, pump the brakes? This is not what these people need. These people have mental health you know, um, psychological problems. Let's, let's get them good mental health care. So, um, why now? And that's a facetious question, but in, in your presentation, you got into, because you just can't do it. So like you may, are any, in the medical community, when there are, if someone were to come to you and say, no, I, I, I this is the standard of care you'd look back at them and say, well, it can't be the standard of care because these are the results. Like, this is what it looks like. Can you paint that picture for our listeners? Wait, wait, I'm not understanding the question. Say it again. So, so, okay. So we talked about fabricating genitalia and like now, now we're getting into the weeds of it. We talked about cutting off, uh, uh, healthy breasts, and we talked about uh, uh, creating uh, prosthetic limbs, uh, whatever. Um, That's called they call it bottom surgery. That's a more polite way of talking about it. Bottom surgery. Okay, right. <laughs> but I think many people want to know if it works. And, and what I'm saying is, their argument is it works. Like their argument is we should do it. Let, let's put them on these drugs because it works there. Uh, let's, let's do these surgeries because it works. And I feel like my listeners and, and I know you, I know you do this. Someone just needs to honestly say, no, it doesn't work. This is actually what it looks like. It's, it's, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, I can paint that picture, but you're going to want to put a PG 18 rating on this episode. So here's the reality. Okay, there's this, there's stages of puberty, and there's, you know, Tanner stage one, two, three. Typically, if you're going to block a child's puberty, this is a little kid who's not started puberty yet, but he, little boy, thinks he's a little girl. Doctors say, yeah, he's gender confused. He's, he's really a little girl. Parents are on board because the doctor's telling him this is the standard of care. We're going to do this. If you block puberty um, at Tanner stage two or before, um, these children will never have an orgasm. Okay, that should be part of the informed consent. You have you have signed away your child's ability to ever have sexual intimacy that results in any kind of sexual pleasure. Would you like to do that now, Mr. and Mrs. Jones? Um, these children are going to be. I, can I can I jump in and just answer that question? Because I can't imagine. Being a 22-year-old man who's just found the love of his life, had gone through all of that confusion, and I'm out on the other side, and now I can't orgasm. Like I, li I, the amount of frustration that that would be caused would almost be a frustration that would draw be maddening. And that has nothing to do with any surgery. That has to do with blocking a normal process called puberty. And part of puberty is spouting breasts and getting facial hair and getting deeper voices in Adam's apples. But it's also part of puberty is maturing your sexual organs and your glands. And when all of that's blocked, it's just like you've been put into menopause, like you're the old man in the nursing home that can't get an erection or you're the old woman in the nursing home that has zero sex drive whatsoever. You've just, you've removed that from the child without even doing surgery. Then and if you remove you, it permanently you, or just as long as they're on the drug? It, it's it's gone. I mean, you can't like say, okay, you're 65 years old now. And we're going to let you go through puberty, Michael. It's, 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 you know, when right. you think about normal, right. normal development, it happens at a certain time. You can't just say pause it and say, we're going to make you do this. And then when you're 40, you go, ah, yeah. I'd like to go through puberty now. You missed the window. It's gone. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it's like the hair is gray. You can't, you can't say, oh no, the hair won't get gray. It's just, that's what happens. Um, now, if you get into the surgeries, you know, this, this is where it gets really brutal because you will most likely not have functioning lower genitalia um, that will be able to 
do the things, you know, you, you've rendered these children infertile. So they're offered fertility preservation. Little boy, would you like to bank your sperm and freeze it in the sperm bank so that when you grow up and you're pretending to be a woman, you can go, little girl, before you become a, a boy, would you like to freeze and bank your eggs? Because we know what we're doing is rendering them sterile or at a, at a minimum, maybe just neg you know, negatively impacting their fertility so they may be able to get pregnant, but probably not. And why do we offer fertility preservation to them? Because we know damn well that we're gonna, what we're about to do is gonna render them infertile. Um, then when you get into the surgeries, you know, again, there's just so many people have, you know, these poor men, that have you know had neovaginas built and had their penises removed. You know, they talk about how it takes them thirty minutes to empty their bladder. You know uh, the the um, women who have had what they call phalloplasty. They make the fake penis. They take the big huge muscle and big tissue from your arm or from your thigh, and they manufacture this. You know. You know, they're just, it's, I can't even talk about it. I, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm stuttering because I'm trying to find acceptable public words and I can't, um, but it's, it's butchery. It's mutilation. Let's it's, just talk about, yeah, like, like, when, let's just go back to the men, the, the, the 30 minutes to empty the bladder. Like, are we talking like using catheters now? Because it's just been. That so... I don't know. I haven't asked. I don't know if they just have to sit on the toilet a long time. I don't know. Yeah, but, but I, you know, I think you referenced this, but we're talking about open wounds, right? Like you're, you had talked a little bit about this, like the, you don't cut up flesh and redecorate flesh, like flesh tries to figure out how to stop bleeding and, and, and grow calluses and like. It, and, and when it women have the, the double mastectomy, I think I mentioned this in the talk that you heard, it's not the same type of mastectomy that women who have breast cancer. You know, when a woman has breast cancer, they try to remove as little of the breast tissue as possible to keep, you know, secondary glands and things intact, um, just removing enough to deal with the cancer. But when a young girl who's transitioning to becoming a man, which is baloney, they do what's called um, chest masculization surgery too. So they're actually grinding the bones to try to give the, the woman not just a flat breastless chest, but a more masculine appearance. They, they do facial bone um, a, a surgeries, a plastic surgeries to make a man's face look more feminine or a woman's face look more masculine, whether it be widening the jaw or narrowing the nose. So this is, it's this one big plastic surgeon's, you know, picnic with all these things that these people want to do to try to be able to present as something that they're not. And this is just part of the, we are just denying biology. We're denying biological reality. We're designing, we're denying the purpose of the body. Um, we're denying the, the different function of the body. We're denying the, how the body is so intricately connected that if you tweak this, you know, that you made, you, you know, you block puberty and you've rendered this child without a, any sexual pleasure or ability to have children. I mean, and then we're hate, hateful bigots if we don't throw the trans party parade. You know, and we stand up well, and we say, we don't want these men competing in women's sports and we don't want these men in women's shelters and women's prisons. And we don't want our little girls at school having to go to, to the bathroom with a little boy who says he's a girl because she's going to be uncomfortable having this little boy in the bathroom with her, even though he says he's a girl. We ignore all that because we don't want this one little tiny population to feel offended. Hey friends, I'm happy to talk to you again about Rocklink Investment Partners. With inflation at 40 year highs and economic stagflation on the horizon, growing and preserving your hard earned capital is of utmost importance. I know it's on my mind. And that's why Rocklink Investment Partners are so essential because they understand the investment challenges of today. Rocklink is an independent investment management firm focused solely on creating portfolios of high quality businesses anchored to the time tested principles of value investing. And they do not shy away from essential businesses that do not 
meet the World Economics Forum's dis- definition of ESG. So email rocklink at info at rocklink.com. That's rocklink with a C or visit them at www.rocklink.com. And again, that's link with a C. Well, and, and again, we, we've, we've stayed in the medical world, you know, they, they might be offended, but also like the, the only way to true redemption for any of us is the repentance of our sin, the alignment with the the agreement with god about his reality and his world there's no other situation where you can reject god's creational ways and his moral ways and and thrive and succeed and so like real redemption of course we know as believers is to confess christ and look at ourselves and measure ourselves, find ourselves wanting and saying, okay, I I can receive forgiveness and I can receive care from people who understand and care for me and will tell me the truth about me. And so not, not only is it like we get labeled all of these things and then often get bullied into silence, but we're actually bullied into not offering them the very thing that Christ offers it with it, which is re- redemption, which which is forgiveness, which is the love of God, and um, that's where for me, I, that's where for me, I'm like, I feel like you do some days that I'm a prophet just out there. Somebody throw me down a well, and on the days where I feel like, should we keep this conversation up? It's like, yeah, no, no, let's keep the conversation up, and I'm going to get camel skins because everybody. Everybody, I don't even give a rip what you think about me. We've got to bring people back from this insanity. And and I, I do appreciate your medical and your biological expertise here, Jennifer, where you're, where you're keeping us on that framework because it's, yeah, I, I woke up, I woke up about 10 days ago and I just thought never in my mind would I really think like, okay, the fact that people have struggles, the fact that people have perversions that doesn't shock me never in my life would have would i actually think that i woke up one morning and like the prime minister of canada is on a tv show that basically he teaches all canadians that we have to believe these men grotesque men standing in front of him who are are girls and that we all have to accept that and that the president yeah. of the United States, like never did I thought that this would be so yeah. nationally accepted. And then, so so you're, you're you've had pediatric experience. Well, our second child, and most of my listeners know this, our second child su- su- um, suffered with um, hepatoblastoma. So Gabriel had a childhood liver cancer, and. Um, Never would you convince me that places like any children's hospitals, you thought that I thought that that like in the medical world, that would have been it. Like, no, like absolutely not. That's insane. We're not doing that to kids. And then you have the Boston's children's hospital. You have all these children's hospitals. I I think I'm just saying I worked in them for many years. So how does that go? Like, how does that go on a nursing floor? Like, you can't, they they can't actually believe what they're saying. Well, when I was, you know, I haven't worked in clinical nursing for quite a bit now because I've been doing, running the Center for Bioethics and Culture. So this wasn't happening when I was in nursing school. This is, this is new. This is progress. (laughs) Um, So yeah, when when I was in uh, working in pediatrics, it was the, the model was watchful waiting. If you had children that were kind of confused, you just, you know, you just watch them, you know, and kind of try to figure out what was going on. Is there something going on in the home? Was this child being bullied? Was this child on the autistic spectrum? You know, it wasn't this, but now, now for people like us that are trying to push back on this, we have all these medical professional bodies who are like the experts, right? In pediatrics saying, this is the standard of care for treating these children, which makes it even harder, you know, to, to, push back on it. it. Like you say, with your prime minister, and of course, with uh, Joe Biden in the White House, I mean, he's got 
men in, in lady dress, you know, in his, you know, key, key administrative positions. You know, it's just an absolute joke. You turn on the evening news and you think, have I woken up in some kind of dystopian movie or something? <laughs> have we lost our ever loving mind? Um, but I do think based on, you know, all the other times when medicine went, went wrong, that, and I said this at the talk I gave, I think this is a winnable issue, especially when it comes to children, because I do think we're going to see lawsuits. We already have two, two or three in the United States of, of young women who were put on the fast track to changing their bodies, um, who are, are now, have now filed lawsuits. You know, these are minor women. You know, minor children cannot consent to this. If you asked a, a 10-year-old, do you want to freeze and bank your egg or sperm for kids later? What 10-year-old is even thinking about having kids? You know, if you told this 10-year-old that you will never have sexual play pleasure, they don't even know what you're talking about. You know, it's like, you know, you don't have to make your bed. Oh, okay, whatever. You know? So I think we'll see. And, you know, in as, as it relates to the involuntary sterilization, my own state, California, Gavin Newsom, our governor, had signed into bill. You know, we have a reparations act because California was the largest state with the most people that we involuntarily sterilized. And we are paying reparations to those people. I think we will have to pay reparations to young children who were who were lied to, who were told that this is what you need to do. This will fix you. This will help you only to find out. And we know there's good studies that show these people who do fully medically, surgically transition. They they're they're not better. Duh. You know, the suicide rate is still high because because we haven't dealt with their underlying problem. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, I want to thank you for your clear and bold voice on this and I, and all of your research. So, folks, make sure that you are are, are checking out. Je Jennifer, where, where should people find your work? Uh, do you have any materials you specifically want to share with our listeners? I, I know you've made a movie. Yeah, we've made 10 movies. Um, so please okay. go find our YouTube channel, the Center for Bioethics and Culture Network on YouTube. Like 99.9% .9 of our movies, all of our content is free there. Our newest movie, The Detransition Diaries, is still on Vimeo. It's on our Vimeo channel for $5.99 to, to rent it because we're just trying to make, you know, we're a little tiny little scrappy nonprofit trying to pay the bills. Um, and our website, cbc-network.org. I'm really active on Twitter, on Instagram, a little bit on Facebook. So find me at Jennifer Lal at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're here. That's great. We're not going away. <laughs> That's awesome. But invite I, me I to your cocktail parties. Like, say that again? Invite me to your cocktail parties. <laughs> oh, no. I definitely will, although it would be like two of us in the room. So we'd probably see the parting of a Red Sea. Like, I, as you walked in the door, I would play the REM. No, I, I, would, pray, I would play the U2 song and you – you were just talking about the end of the world, you know, that whole, that it would just be that, that would be the song and be like, everybody, here's Jennifer. Um, hey, shout out to you. Good for you for recording with a guitar hanging in the background. Just, uh, that's, that's I'm just an ordinary girl that, burning down the house. Just ordinary girl burning down the house. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, everybody, this is an important topic, and especially as Liberty Coalition Canada gets involved with um, uh, Josh Alexander and uh, his uh, – just so you know, Jennifer, a young Canadian boy has actually been um, uh, expelled from his high school for – publicly stating that there should not boys should not be allowed to use any of the female bathrooms in his high school and for quoting scripture that he made them male and female. And so he's been expelled in our organization. The, the legal arm of our organization is actually representing him trying to appeal that expulsion. Well done. And so, so folks, this is a pressing issue and I'm so glad Jennifer, you said that it's a winnable issue because I hope it is because if, if not, we are waking up in absurdo dystopian world and um, we, we really need to help people by reteaching them 
all of these biological and scriptural truths. So Jennifer, thank you for your work. Thank you. Everybody, thanks for listening. And we uh, we pray that you would just go out there and 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 you hear in Jennifer, don't don't be afraid to be the person who people say uh, all those terrible names about. You know, d- don't live out don't don't live any 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 of your own sin and pride and self-righteousness out, you know, deal with that, but get out there and be willing to take one for the team of truth. You know, if you're a doctor, don't let don't let these policies go by. If you're a nurse, don't let other nurses and and other doctors just ignore reality. Get out there and we we need to turn our culture around on this issue. So, thanks for listening and Godspeed. <laughs>